open, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 14. We've been uh, in a series in the book of Acts, and we are going to continue going through that. So uh, what we typically do on Sunday mornings is we take books of the Bible, and we just read through them, verse by verse. If you guys don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. We have our show. love to get your Bible. So we just take books of the Bible, and we read through them. We let the Scripture inform and un- transform our understanding as to who God is, and so uh, we, we feel it's a way in which we allow what we would call the apostles, the uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, whoever, inform our minds, the Old Testament prophets, inform our minds as to who God is. So we've been in a series looking at what we call the book of Acts. The book of Acts, in short, is a story about what we would call the early church and how it was this community of people that went from uh, being disillusioned and bummed out. They were followers of Jesus for some length of time, around three years, a bunch of people were. And yet, if you are familiar with the story of Jesus, Jesus is brutally murdered, put to death, he's buried in the grave, and throughout that season of time, three days, his community of people, we call them the church, they went from being excited and happy to utterly gutted and frustrated and disillusioned and broken and even a sense of loss. And yet, radically changed is they come out of that. They become this movement that is unstoppable. And that's where we see the book of Acts. And the question naturally has to be asked, how did this community of people go from being disillusioned, saddened, broken, lost, to becoming this unstoppable movement that literally sets forth into all the world as we see in the book of Acts? And the answer to that is the resurrection. Jesus rises again from the dead. He doesn't remain dead. And there is something completely unnatural that happens, right? You don't see too many people raised from the dead. We would say that's unnatural. It does not happen. It's not typical of what takes place in our world. But Jesus did that. And that radically transformed and changed this small community of disillusioned people to becoming this unstoppable, celebratory, uh, focused, passionate, courageous community of people going into all the world and proclaiming this message. We would call the gospel, the message that, that God has not left us or abandoned us, but that God has chosen to do something to rescue us in Jesus. And we know that because of who Jesus is and what Jesus did and what Jesus said and the fact that even though he died, he rose again from the dead. He's alive. This is the reality that we see. This is what the book of Acts is all about. It's the story of this movement going forth into all the world, bringing transformation and change to all. So we're going to jump into the story in just a moment. In fact, Acts chapter 14 is what we're going to look at. It's a kind of a lengthy chapter, about 28 verses. Um, and as I was reading through over the past couple of weeks, studying and preparing and whatnot, uh, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll take sections of passages in kind of a lengthy spot, and we'll just kind of look at that and focus on that. So I was reading through this, um, I felt that if we were to kind of cut it up into little sections and wait week by week to do that, then I think we would lose some key elements in the passage. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to break this into like a two-week series. But what I want to do this morning is I'm going to read through the entire chapter. So, <clears throat> so what that means is that we're going to basically read the entire story, chapter 28, and, <clears throat> and then we'll make some final closing thoughts, and then next week... What we'll do is we'll take a look at, from chapter 14, certain elements and key traits about these people that are the main characters in chapter 14, but really throughout the rest of the book of Acts as well, but especially chapter 14. What are some of the key character traits about these people that are in there? And I think hopefully that will bring some 
uh, encouragement and strength and whatnot to us. But what I want to do before we jump in, I want to kind of ask a bigger question as to how does chapter 14 fit into the larger narrative of the book of Acts? So I think there's at least two things to consider with regard to chapter 14. One is that chapter 14 kind of describes this outflowing gospel work from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. So in other words, um, to understand something a little bit about Christianity at its primal stages. When Christianity first came on the scene, in fact, I think it's worthwhile to state that no one in the first century would have identified this movement as Christian. They wouldn't say, well, where are the Christians at? Oh, they meet, you know, 41, whatever. Um, they, They would have never identified them as Christians. They would have just said the followers of Jesus or the disciples of Jesus. But the reality is, is that you had this movement that was, for the most part, exclusively uh, connected to the race of Jews. It was Jewish. It was a Jewish movement. It was a Jewish Messiah. It was a Jewish religion for all intents and purposes. It started in Jerusalem. It flourished in Jerusalem. It launched from Jerusalem. Everything had to do with Jerusalem. This was exclusively a a Jewish uh, movement. But what we see is that this movement continued to grow and expand beyond Jerusalem. That God had hopes and plans and intentions for this movement not to remain exclusively Jewish, but to then go into all the world and to begin to telescope into all other nations, bringing them into this new family. Not a Jewish family, but a Jesus family. A family that was completely surrendered to and surrounded by Jesus Jesus would become the new main point of denomination, the main point that would connect everyone together. Whereas for Jews, what connected them together was a common ancestor. His name was Abraham. And a common action, we call it circumcision, right? As well as common social codes, like eating kosher food, and common norms in terms of how they would dress. But in Christianity, this movement that was launched around Jesus, it was different. It was not based upon circumcision. It was not based upon family lineage. It was not based upon your bloodline. In other words, it was not based upon your race. Christianity literally was going from being this race-centric movement to becoming a, a, a global movement. And this is what we see happening here. Now, look, the reality is you and I should be extremely grateful for that. Because if you or I lived in the first century... What we would be viewed as, especially if you are non-Jewish, right? I realize maybe some of you, a small minority of you, may be Jewish by background, by heritage. But most of us, overwhelmingly probably most of us, we would be viewed by this movement as somewhat outcast. And so what you see in the early church, in other words, if you want another label for it, yes, the early church, for the most part, they were racist. They were race-centered, race-centric. And they were learning how, by way of Jesus to become this movement that was open to all races, all people, all colors of skin, all social economic levels, no matter who they were. And this is what we see the church beginning to grow into because this is who God is. God's not racist. God is not Jewish. All right, God is God. He is he's above any type of race. God creates races, right? So what we see is that we have this God that is actually welcoming all people, no matter who they are, their background, their looks, their their social economic level, their race, whoever it is, to come in to be a part of this movement. And the book of Acts is a story, the narrative, of how this community that originally started as Jewish people began to spread into non-Jewish regions. We would call that the nations. 
That's another way of describing it, or ultimately to the ends of the earth. So we see this movement outflowing from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, and that's where chapter 14 kind of fits in with the narrative. And we also see the second thing is that it describes how the gospel is for the healing of the nations, that God's intention is not to just tell the gospel, preach the good news to all these other people. It's actually to bring them into this new family for their healing. Because, look, at the end of the day, people, the way that we find wholeness and healing is finding a place to where we belong. I mean, isn't that really oftentimes the main social, uh, like, failure within our culture is that we want a place to belong. I mean, look, go back to fourth grade with me and think about when you showed up on campus and you realized there were already cliques at that level, at that age, where there were the cool people, there were the non-cool people, there were the nerds, there were the jocks. There were all these different segments of, of cultures and subcultures within there, the haves versus the have-nots. And the question we're always wrestling is, where do I belong? Where do I belong on the blacktop? Where do I belong during recess? What bench and what place and what spot do I belong to? And that question has never ceased the older we get. In fact, it gets a little bit more complex the older we get, right? The older we get, we as older people now, as we look and try to figure out and make sense of the world in front of us, we have all sorts of other new channels by which we're trying to figure out where do we belong, who are our people, who do we identify with. And the reality is it goes back to this issue of a sense of belonging. And the gospel is all about a sense of belonging. The gospel is basically tearing down these walls that we typically put up and erect and set up. And the gospel says, no, no, we're going to rip down all these walls and welcome all in the Messiah. All are welcomed in Jesus. And so we see it's for the healing. That those that receive this message, those that receive the grace, the goodness, the gift of God to be welcomed, to be forgiven, to be washed, to be given a place... That begins this process we would call healing in your heart. When you begin to realize, let me put it in another context. When you begin to realize you are accepted for you, not for what you look like, not for how skinny you are, or not for what type of clothing you wear, not for the type of car you drive, not for anything else, because you are accepted for you in spite of who you are. In spite of the monster that dwells inside of you, that you are embarrassed to let other people in, lest they begin to see that. When you are able to realize the walls can come down and I will still be loved nonetheless. Who I am, this is the God that accepts and welcomes and transforms us. When we realize that, it begins to heal us. We begin to be transformed, changed. We begin to be remade into the image, the likeness of our creator, God, who loves us and gave himself for us. That's what we see. And this is the story. Chapter 14 is the story of the gospel going out, welcoming outsiders, outcasts into this family. We call the church. So there you go. That's how this chapter kind of fits with into the overall narrative. So I figured let's just jump right into the narrative. You guys ready? Ready for story time? We're going to read the story. That's it. I'll, I'll make some comments, right? Um, and we'll just make some comments and make our way through the whole story. So let's, let's jump right in. Let's read it. Acts chapter 14, verse 1. If you guys don't have Bibles, we have it up on the screen. But uh, let's follow. It says this, verse 1. It says, now at Iconium. Stop right there. All right, stop right there. Um, I want to show you a little map to give you a little bit of a, a, a place as to where we're at. Um, here's a map. Here's a map. Whoa, we got, we got the map moving around there. So there we go. Good job. It's a little bit bigger now. So take a look at the map here. You see kind of the little red line. Zooming in there. 
Uh, you see these black uh, circles up there. You see uh, Iconium, Lister, Derby. That's the area that we're at. Iconium is that's the spot that we're reading about right here. It's uh, ancient Asia Minor, um, modern day Turkey. If you're trying to figure out where this is at, so Mediterranean Sea and all that right there. So Paul, um, one of the main characters in this story, along with his good friend, a guy by the name of Barnabas, they were traveling and uh, they saw themselves as going out, communicating and announcing what we call the good news, the gospel. And uh, they found themselves going into these regions of ancient Asia Minor, minor modern-day Turkey, into areas that were largely unknown to any type of Jewish settlement. In other words, this is completely non-Jewish terrain, territory. So imagine if you're a guy like Paul the Apostle, raised as a Jewish guy, lived within a Jewish context, very familiar, your whole life was all about Jewish custom, Jewish tradition, now you're going to hang out with, spend time with, eat food with, rub shoulders with uh, a bunch of people that are completely unlike you. And this is what Paul did. And he did this joyfully. And so we see him going to this region called Iconium. So now at Iconium, they entered together into a Jewish synagogue and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Gentiles or Greeks uh, some of your translations might say the word that's actually used there could also refer to Gentiles. The idea is anybody who is a non-Jew, anyone who is non-Jewish, would be identified as a Greek or a Gentile. That's the way they would be seen. Again, see the distinctions that are going on here. Um, and he goes on to say, and a great multitude believe. Now, Paul's MO uh, would be to typically go into a region and first find a settlement of Jewish people. Now, if you were to be going to a brand new region and you would find a settlement of Jewish people, you'd want to go to where Jewish people would hang out. Now, every Jewish uh, community, where there was a Jewish community, they would typically hang out or gather together on Shabbat, which would be like a Friday night, Saturday, um, and they would gather around what was called a synagogue. A synagogue was basically just a local gathering, kind of like a gathering like this. And there are other areas in which Paul would go into that there was no Jewish synagogue in there. So what does it tell us about that area? It tells us that there's really no Jewish settlement, or at least not a significant enough Jewish settlement to actually build a synagogue. So where there's synagogues tells us a little bit about the area, that even though it might have been a predominantly non-Jewish area, there would have been a large Jewish, or at least large enough Jewish population to create a place of gathering, a house of worship called a synagogue. And so Paul would go into these synagogues because Paul was raised Jewish, trained Jewish. His whole background was all Jewish. Um, and Paul recognized he worshiped the Jewish Messiah. So he would go into these Jewish settlements because these people knew the scripture. Paul could speak common language with them. He could be like, look, Abraham. They'd be like, oh, we get Abraham. Paul would be like, let's talk about circumcision. He'd be like, we all get circumcision. Paul can say, let's talk about the Ten Commandments. They're like, we all get the Ten Commandments. And Paul would literally start there because these were language bridges that Paul was able to begin to begin with them and then lead them all the way to talk about Jesus, the Messiah, the King. And it would all make sense to them. Some would believe, some wouldn't believe. Now, when Paul would go into areas that had no Jewish settlement, Paul changes his, his mode of operation with them, the way that he communicated, the way he talked. And we'll actually see that within the chapter. But Paul typically would go to these Jewish contacts and synagogues, tell them about Jesus. Some would believe, some wouldn't. Typically, what would oftentimes happen is you would have people respond positively, and then there are others that would respond negatively. Typically, the ones that would respond negatively, guess who they were? They were the ones that had power. They were the ones that had some sort of vested interest in that local community. 
So in other words, where there's a local community, there's probably money coming in, and where there's money coming in, there's power, there's a sense of, 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 of importance, and, and here you got a guy like Paul coming in, and he's disrupting that whole chain of events that leads to a sense of, I'm somebody important here. And as a result of that, people were frustrated. So let me, let me put it this way. Jesus has this profound propensity to disrupt our lives. That shouldn't come as a shock to us. That should not be overwhelming. That should not trouble us. Because if he is indeed king of kings and lord of lords, then that would mean, it should mean, that he has things to say to us and about how we live our lives and about how we try to develop our own identity and how we try to figure out who we are and make sense of life about us that will contradict him. Does that make sense? So if he is king, there's no doubt there are things that he's going to say that are going to be disrupted to our lives. This shouldn't be a problem. Unless we want to keep the status quo, unless we are committed and devoted to remaining in power. Another way of saying that, unless we are devoted to remaining on the throne of our lives, if we're truly interested and desirous of having King Jesus enthroned as king in our lives, in our hearts, over all that we are, then there will be conflict. And at some point, that conflict will come to a head. At some point, that conflict should rise within our lives where either we feel a sense of like we surrender, we tap out, we turn the reins over to Jesus and we say, Lord, we we trust you. I don't get it. Does it make a lot of sense? I feel like my life is losing control, but I'm trusting you. Or we say, I don't want to trust you. I don't want to follow you. I don't like the way that you've taken the direction of my life. You haven't given me what I've expected. I paid 15 days, and you haven't given me what I wanted. I've even fasted once for 48 hours, and you gave me nothing. My life is not taking the shape that I think it should take shape, and I'm mad at you. And I'm not going to worship you. And the reality is there's, there's conflict. And so we see conflict. Paul talking about Jesus, talking about God's kingdom. And as a result of that, there is turmoil, there's disruption, there is a sense of elation on one hand because people are trusting King Jesus, their lives are being transformed, being surrendered, they're being welcomed, their lives are being, uh, being affirmed in the sense of God's love over them, for them, uh, and transforming them because God wants to transform us into his image. But then there's others that, that, are, that are desperately fighting to hold on to what little shreds of ownership they can have. And they're mad. They're angry. They're wanting to push Paul and his companion out. So let's jump back into the story. It says, uh, verse 3, So they remained there for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, and they bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When, they, uh, and when an attempt was made by the Gentiles and the Jews and the rulers of the, uh, uh, to mistreat them and to stone them, to put them to death by way of bludgeoning them with stones, it says, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and the surrounding region of the country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So it got so bad that Paul and Barnabas recognized that to remain here means we'll probably 
die, which means we probably won't have as effective as a ministry as we thought. So we're going to leave, and we're going to go to another city, which is what they did. But here's the crazy thing. They leave that area preaching the gospel, um, threatened for preaching the gospel, and they go into another area preaching the gospel. I mean, these, these guys are unstoppable. They're unstoppable, the things that they're able to do. They just keep going, uh, communicating, proclaiming this good message of Jesus. Verse 8 says, Now at Lystra, uh, there was a man... So why don't we go back to that map real quick and just show this to you real fast. Just more of the overview of that. Um, so take a look at this again. Uh, they now are at Lystra. So originally they were in Iconium. So if you look at Lystra, Lystra might be about another 15 miles, 10 miles, or something like that to the south. So uh, again, imagine in your mind, they, they probably did not have horses or modern means of, of, of transportation. They probably just simply walked. That's the way things kind of worked. Back in that day, there's one other kind of side note that's pretty amazing, is that Rome, as, as amazing Rome was, you know, as debauched as Rome was, there's a lot of amazing things that Rome did as well, is they created this incredible system of roads. And um, in other words, in some ways, they were kind of the, the original uh, means to connect civilizations together. They created the very first information superhighway called you know, ancient road system. Um, it was obviously a very, very remedial form of the internet, connecting, social networking, different societies and communities together by way of brick roads. And, and I love this because these guys no doubt used these passages from, from one spot to another to go and to communicate the gospel. And so it says that as they go to Lystra, it says, now there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and he had never walked. He listened to Paul saying that Paul, looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said to him in a loud voice, stand upright upon your feet. And then he says, and he sprang up and he began walking. Just think about this. Paul walks in the city, uh, doesn't know any of these people. Um, we're, We're told that Paul, again, typically would go to synagogues. In his context, it doesn't say anything about Paul going to a synagogue, which immediately gives us a little bit of an insight that it's very likely that this particular city of uh, Lystra did not have a very significant Jewish population. So Paul, even though that didn't hinder Paul in any way, um, Paul just goes in there. He sees this guy that was at the city gate begging. And it's amazing because Paul asked him, stand up and rise. And imagine the amount of faith that it takes to actually invite someone to do something like that. So imagine asking someone that's crippled, stand up. What if they don't stand up? Or what if, worse yet, they do stand up and they fall back down. In other words, your whole hope of a miracle falls flat. It literally does not work. So it takes faith. And this is what Paul does. He has some level of confidence that God is up to something. He asks this guy to stand up. This guy does stand up. And this incredible event begins to unfold. This drama begins to happen within everyone. He says in verse 10, he says with a loud voice, stand up to your feet. And having sprung up, he began Walking, when the crowds saw that Paul had, what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices and they began saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes or Mercury, because they, he was a chief speaker. And then it says, and the priests of Zeus, uh, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, they brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and they wanted to offer sacrifices to the crowds. So just think about this for a moment. So Paul and Barnabas, they come walking in this city, it's totally pagan, um, which means that there, there's no trace of worship of Yahweh. They're just worshiping all these other pantheon of gods, in this case, Zeus and, and Hermes. So this taps into a little bit of a backstory. All right, the backstory is this, that that particular city 
had this myth. And the myth went something like this, that years ago, according to the story, uh, Zeus and Hermes showed up to the city. And uh, nobody recognized Zeus and Hermes within their city. There was an old uh, man and an old lady that recognized them and brought them in and made them, I don't know, stew and gave them a place to stay and showed hospitality and were kindness to them and whatnot. And what happened was Zeus and Hermes, to bless these old people, basically turned them into trees and the trees supposedly still remain to that day. So they got transformed into trees as a way of kind of showing some level of eternality, like you're gonna, we're going to make you live forever, you're going to become trees. The rest of the city was like, like scorched earth. They were just destroyed because they rejected or didn't recognize Zeus and Hermes. So there was this myth, this story that basically said, if Zeus and Hermes come back again, we don't want to miss them. <laughs> of course, right? You, there's, you, you're incentivized to make sure you don't like, miss them. Um, you don't want to become barbecue. So you are looking for opportunities in which maybe Zeus and Hermes show up at your city gate. So here, two guys show up. You have no idea who they are. They look kind of funky. You have, you've never seen them before or anything about the type. And they raise this guy from the, from, from the ground up. He was once crippled. Now he's walking around leaping, jumping, something no doubt happened. That's a miraculous value here. And so the city, uh, motivated by these, uh, these myths, immediately rise up. They're like, what's the right thing to do? The right thing to do is offer sacrifices of bulls and goats to these two gods, right? So they begin to, like, worship them. Um, this, this story is amazing. It actually reminds me of this great uh, line from a movie. I'll just show you the, the picture, see if you guys resonate with it. So they're being worshipped. All right, here's this. Resonate with anyone? Is that right? Right? Remember that? C-3PO shows up amongst the Ewoks, and they're like, worship him. He's like this golden god. So that's exactly what happens here. These guys, are, they walk in the city, and they do this miracle, and now they're being worshipped and adored and sacrificed to. And again, Paul and Barnabas, because they're worshipers of, of Yahweh, they realize there is no other god besides Yahweh, and yet they're being worshipped as gods, which raises an interesting thing. Every culture, then Paul's going to address them where they're at, and he speaks. I'll, just, I'll say a couple of words of what Paul has to say. He goes on to say in about verse, uh, oh, let's see, about 13, it says, And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, they brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and they wanted to offer sacrifice to Barnabas and Paul. And it says in verse 14, But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments. It was a way of basically just saying, We are uh, in revulsion against what you guys are doing. Most people back then, they didn't have big amounts of luggage. So what they wore was kind of probably all that they owned. So to rip your garments, your clothing, was extremely, as an act of saying, look, our, who we are, our dignity, who we think of ourselves to be is, is so torn. We're ripping the very garments that we have that are very costly and valuable. Now, it says... Verse 14, the apostles Barnabas and Paul, they ripped their garments and they rushed out and crying, says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you the good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God uh, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In this past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness for he did good by sending you rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with, fruit, uh, with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifices to them. So Paul gives a message. In fact, this, what's interesting about this message is the very first message that we read in the entire book of Acts 
um, from Paul to a bunch of non-Jewish people. Um, what's significant about this message is, is all that's not there. Paul doesn't mention anything about the Ten Commandments. He doesn't ask them. You guys all know you're sinners, right? You're all sinners. You all need a Savior. He doesn't say anything about that. He does not start from an argument of, of saying you are sinners in need of, of forgiveness. He actually starts from an entirely different route. He says you are idol worshipers in need of being set free. You are enslaved to these false myths that you are, you, are, you, are, you are controlled by, you are manipulated by, and you need to be set free from these things. Now, here's the deal. Every culture, um, even in some ways, even every city has the, these myths that they live according to. I mean, we, we just read or heard about the myth of this ancient city. They had this myth that, you know, Zeus and Hermes would, would maybe come down or return again. And so we better be on our best behavior. We better be on the lookout for Zeus and Hermes. Because if they come back and we miss them, we're going to be destroyed. So they lived, under, what type of people would that myth turn you into? What type of life would you live to live under that type of myth? You'd be afraid all the time. You'd always be afraid. Every type of individual that would come into town, if a stranger shows up on your doorstep and they do something that looks somewhat like miraculous, you'd be like, oh my gosh, this could be, could this be Zeus? Like there's a sense where you are controlled by that. You're manipulated by it. The idea is that you are under the influence of something other than God. Every culture has these myths that it lives according to. So for example, you can go to New York City. Probably there's lots of different types of myths that are predominant within New York City. But I think one myth that would be very predominant within New York City is this myth of success by way of, uh, or the myth of life by way of success. In other words, who you are, how important you are, uh, how, how successful you are in life, in your career, in your business, is directly linked to the type of person uh, and the type of life that you will actually get. In other words, if you have money, if you have affluence, if you have control, if you have power, then you are somebody special. You are of great importance. Your life has meaning. Your life has value. If you, you know, have a blue-collar job and you take the trash out and you're just a servant to all these other people, your life has no value. It's a myth. It's a myth that progress comes by way of having a lot of money, or power, or prestige. I grew up in Orange County. Um, I, I think it would be safe to say that probably one of the myths down there is in order to succeed, in order for your life to have meaning and value, you've got to be exceptionally good looking. You've got to have a nice car. You've got to have things, stuff. Somehow materialism is linked to the type or the quality of person you will be, that your life either has meaning or has no meaning based upon who you are, how you look, how physically fit you are, or the type of car you drive. So if you have a car, you have boasting rights. If you have good looks, you have boasting rights. If you are ugly and if you drive a horrible car, you are constantly forever in this space of hell, torment. You're constantly reminded of the fact that you are a loser. You have nothing. These are myths. They're myths. They're myths that our culture lives according to. And I'll just simply say this, is that if we we know the myths that you live according to, know them, understand what they are, think about them, be careful in terms of the thought process that you give to understanding what these are, because they will control and manipulate your life to the point, they they will be the motivating factors to form who you are as a human being. And you will either flourish under their leadership of your life, or you'll languish 
Because when you fail them, the gods of this world that really aren't gods at all, they never forgive you. When you serve the myths of beauty and you're not beautiful enough or you put on weight or you're not somebody that measures up to the other people, at some point you will be riddled with anxiety and fear and you will do everything in your power to somehow undo the effects of ugliness because the gods of beauty never forgive you. But here's the beauty that Paul comes. He says, look, I'm going to tell you about the true God, the true God that made everything, the true God that comes to set us free, that comes to liberate us, that offers to you freedom, freedom from these false, dead-end, destructive paths, freedom to life. This is what Paul says, I'm going to tell you about this God. He gives you rain. He gives you abundance. He gives you all these things that you never even really stop to pause to think about. What Paul is saying I want to remind you of this God that gives and gives and gives to you unlike the other gods we oftentimes devote ourselves that do nothing but take and take and take and rarely give. And Paul says, trust this, this, this God. He gives you life. He's a good God. That's what Paul does. It's, it's amazing, really, how Paul confronts these cultural myths but then injects the reality, the hopefulness of, of the gospel and brings them back to this. And it's just an amazing, masterful way in which Paul does this. Now, let's jump back in as we kind of wrap up the remainder of this chapter. And I'll make some closing thoughts. He says this, but the Jews, they came from Antioch uh, and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, uh, it says they stoned Paul and dragged him. I just want to listen to this. Why don't we go back to that, that image, that map again real quick. I want you to see this again. So again, Paul is in this area of Lystra. So if you see Lystra right there. So it says right here that Jews from Antioch and Iconium. So Antioch, I think, is all the way to the very top. You can't see right now. And then Iconium. So these are other areas that previous spots that Paul had gone and visited. That there was a ruckus that was caused, kind of a, a rampage, frustration. People felt like their, they were, their leadership or whatever was being undermined. So they followed Paul. They were stalking Paul, right? So when they found out that Paul was in this particular region of, of Lystra, they came down to that particular region. And while they were down at that particular region, uh, we were told that they started this kind of mob scenario. Verse 19, it says, But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds... It says they stoned Paul and they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Just think about this. Think about this. Um, Whatever happened here, uh, when it says they stoned him, again, like I made reference to earlier, they would literally pick up stones. The whole entire region geographically uh, was was filled all sorts of uh, stones and rocks. They'd pick up these stones and throw them upon uh, this person. It was a way of basically, it was ultimate rejection of not only the person, but the message that they came to represent. And so they, they thought that they'd actually killed Paul. Now, several years ago, maybe you were like me, I watched a YouTube video that I've never been able to actually unsee. It was the, uh, it was the, the mass murder and death of Gaddafi. Maybe if you saw that. Like, like, still, there are moments in my mind I cannot unthink and unremember that picture. It was an image on YouTube that was public of Gaddafi being walked through the street having people punch him in the face, hit him in the face, rip out his beard, large chunks of hair missing, and they ultimately left him to a place of death. And this is what happened with Paul. Paul was 
bludgeoned to death by way of rocks to the point they thought he was dead. They drag him outside of the city thinking it's over. He's, he's dead. So I, would, I want you to feel the weightiness of the, the storyline. This is how Luke wants us to feel it, to hear it. So they think he's dead, but this is where the story gets crazy, like amazing, crazy. It says in verse 20, it says, but when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and then he entered the city. Just pause right there and think about that. Again, there's not much of a comment about it, but Paul stands up. The very people that literally left him for dead, he walks back into the city. Who knows what he does? We have no idea. But he goes back into the very place that they thought they, they killed him. Think about that. I mean, look, how do you stop people like this? Like, how do you stop them? This is Paul. And then it goes on to say, it says, and they gathered around him, rose up, went back in the city. And the very next day, uh, he went with Barnabas to, to Derby. So again, if you were looking at the map, which we don't need to go back to again, Derby is about a 30-mile journey from this particular region. So they wake up in the morning, and Paul literally had just been left for dead, goes back in the very city of the very people that tried to kill him, wakes up in the morning with Barnabas. He's like, I'm ready to go. Let's take a journey to Derby. All right, so imagine waking up after a brutal destruction. Let's say you ran a marathon. Let's keep this nice and clean. Let's say you ran a marathon Today, all right? You go home today, you rest, go to a jacuzzi, get a back massage, whatever. Tomorrow morning, you're like, you know, let's walk to Santa Maria. <laughs> let's walk to Paso. All right, let's do this. This sounds awesome, right? You've been brutally messed up with your body physically, but you're like, I still got more energy. That's Paul. It's crazy. How do you stop this guy? So he goes on to the very next city. It says, and when they had preached the gospel to the city, they had made many disciples. So again, Paul is focused. He still goes in. He's like, let's go to the city and tell more people about Jesus. Paul is excruciatingly focused on his mission. It says, and strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It says, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord with whom they had believed. In verse 24, it says, and when they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. So I want you to go back to that like map, show you this a little bit. Um, and we'll summarize all this. So, uh, so from that region of Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, they went back down to this region of, of Adela, uh, Perga, which is the area of the port cities. So Paul, then verse uh, 25, it says, And when they had uh, spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adaliah. Uh, it says, And from there they sailed to Antioch, uh, which is the other Antioch um, there along the Mediterranean Sea, uh, north of Jerusalem. It says, And then uh, when they had... Verse 26, and when they came there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the Lord by the grace of God and the work in which he had called them to fulfill. Verse 27, and when they arrived, they gathered the church together and declared all that God had done to them and how that they had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Is that phrase? How that God opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And again, the emphasis being they were literally moving from this distinctly Gent or Jewish community to welcoming Gentile people. Like, and that actually opens up into the very next chapter, chapter 15, which is all about how do we welcome this radical flood of, of non-Jewish people? These, these are people that know nothing about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the Ten Commandments. These are people that have not been circumcised. These are people that eat all sorts of food that we would consider repulsive. They are enjoying 
bacon. Like, how is it possible that God could love people that eat bacon? We know bacon is this unclean food, and they wrestle with that question, not necessarily about bacon, in chapter 15. Wouldn't it be great, though? But the point of the matter is, is the big question is how, isn't it amazing, how God is welcoming and inviting in to his family all sorts of people, people that normally we would have never considered and expected. God is welcoming them all. And I want to finish with this thought because uh, we're not going to go into it this week. Like I mentioned at the very beginning, it's going to be like a two-part series. I want to just kind of at least be faithful to the narrative itself and just read it. That's why I wanted to just read it. Hopefully that was fun and, and somewhat informative and, um, uh, to you as we just read that. Next week, I want to kind of pull from the storyline um, what I will basically describe as traits of a disciple. Um, this is not teaching necessarily. It's not like Paul stops and like, I want to give you seven characteristic traits of a disciple. These are just traits that as I read the story that kind of popped up to me as I was understanding it, reading it. And I was, I'll go through these real quickly. So just think about them and we'll look at them next week. First of all, we see that one of the traits is that, uh, they were, that Paul and Barnabas, they stewarded both natural and supernatural gifts. God gave them certain gifts and they lived according to them. Here's a handful of them. They're preaching teaching, exhortation, administration. They administered things. They put stuff in order. That's what administration is, all right? If you are somebody that likes to go into an area that's in chaos and you bring order to it, all right? You bring organization. That's a gift that God loves to use. It's called administration. Or healing. Like, these are just gifts that we see being exhibited. The second thing that we see, and again, I'll go through these real quick, is courage. Third thing, perseverance. Fourthly, I see compassion. They show up at the front of this uh, this city gate, and there's this guy who's crippled. They could have walked past him. They could have just simply given him 10 bucks and kept going on. Be like, we're busy. we got a speech engagement to get on to. We have a very busy schedule. They stop, and they say in dialoguing with him, stand up. God wants to show compassion to you through us. It's amazing. I mean, look, these guys could have gotten so big in their ministry that they didn't even have time for people anymore, but that's not what Jesus' ministry is all about. Look, Jesus' people care about the hurting. It's about compassion. It's what we see. And then another couple ones, we'll wrap this up, is uh, wisdom in communicating. Uh, we see humility, right, when they're being worshipped. And that be an amazing situation? I mean, like how many people in today's context, it's like you, you do everything you can in your energy to get a crowd, and not just simply leverage a crowd, but to leverage a crowd that honor and worship and adore you. We call it idol, idolatry, right? We even have a show, American Idol, the idea of making idols out of people. But Paul and Barnabas are literally being worshipped. People are sacrificing animals to them at the city gates. And they're like, don't do this. This is not okay. It's amazing. Like, it's total humility. And then finally, we see a sense of persistence. It just keep going on and on. How is it possible that they were able to do this? In short, and let's close it with this thought, is that this is not about looking at Paul and Barnabas' characters and saying, aren't they amazing? Go be like them. That doesn't motivate anybody. In fact, if anything, if that was the message today, we'd all walk away and be like, we suck. We are no good at what we do. Like, we are not good Christians because we don't do this. We do the opposite. The emphasis is how is it that Paul and Barnabas were able to do this? Because they were swept up into this narrative of Jesus. They had a master. They preached a master who came into this world who had the most incredible level of courage when he faced adversity, who even though he was God, was humble. 
We have a God that was persistent. That even though he had many turn their backs on him, he kept welcoming and pursuing and loving. And even though they kill him, he rises from the dead. And even when he comes back, he doesn't come back with vengeance. Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, gather together an army and say, let's go destroy Rome now. Jesus says, I've come back. Let's go announce forgiveness to our enemies. This is the story they're swept up into. What I want you to see is the bigness of the good news. Let the reality of who God is transform you. Let it capture your imagination. Let it reshape the substance of who you are. Let it confront the idols and those cultural narratives that we so desperately want to be true, but are always whispering into our ears, we'll give you life, but they always fail to deliver. And when you fail them, they rarely, if ever, have the capacity to forgive you, because they can't. To see the reality of this God, that when we fail him, he forgives us. When we violate him, he welcomes us back over and over and over again. This is the message that Paul and Barnabas communicated. This is the good news. This is what made these people unstoppable. When they realized that their God unstoppably pursued them, this transformed them to be these type of people. So what I want you to see is this message of the gospel. And receive it. So we're going to respond. Why don't we all stand? I'm done. The message is officially finished. And I'm going to, I'm going to invite you guys to, to worship, to sing, to respond to God. We're going to respond by taking communion. We eat the bread, drink the cup as a way of reminding ourselves that this was the avenue. This is the pathway. This is the road that God took to rescue us, to save us. That though we had no place of belonging, God welcomed us. God came to us. God extended love to us. Not because we are lovely, but because he loves us. And by loving us, and by us receiving that love, transforms us, changes us from people that are rebels and have rebel hearts to becoming people that have soft hearts, hearts like a human, like a child that trusts and love. This is what God invites us to. So if you're here this morning and you're, you're not a Christian, my invitation to you as always is to open your heart to receive this gift of life that God extends. If, if you are a Christian here and the story of this message has just become status quo to you, the invitation to you is to see it in new light and be captivated by it, be blown away by it, be compelled by the beauty of it and let that beauty draw you in. Because what beauty does. When you see something beautiful, you want to be one with it. You want to be part of it to see the beauty of the gospel, to be brought into it, to be transformed by it.